Okay, turn with me in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 33. And we will uh, finalize tonight our series we've been doing the last several weeks on understanding hell. This has been an enlightening topic, a challenging topic, one that's definitely worked my heart. Appreciate you all, those of you that have hung in there the last month, appreciate you hanging in there. It can be uh, difficult to stare into these truths, but I feel like we have to. We have to stare into the biblical truths that uh, maybe make us feel very uncomfortable or... um, you know, that we don't even know really what we think about them. We've still got to stare into the truth of the scripture and allow it to write the script of our heart and, and speak to us about who God is. And so uh, the last couple of weeks we've done um, essentially a Bible study. We've just walked through verse after verse after verse, presented a case uh, from the Old Testament and from the New Testament about... Uh, you know, what the Bible says about hell. We looked at the different uh, scriptural words for hell and explained those in detail. And then we answered a couple questions. Um, A couple weeks ago, we answered the question, you know, how can a God of love uh, send people to hell? And we talked about how because he is love, uh, that sending people to hell or, or the expression of his wrath, it isn't inconsistent with who he is as love. It's actually... His love and his wrath burn from the same fire, the fire of who he is. It's, they're both part of his attributes. And so uh, we did that a couple weeks ago. And, and then uh, last week we answered the question of, is hell forever? And we looked specifically at the New Testament through a bunch of verses and just kind of laid out the details and, <clears throat> and kind of answered some arguments there. Uh, tonight we're going to answer a final question and it's essentially this, is the, the punishment of hell, is it a just punishment? That's what we're going we're gonna to look at tonight. So as we're moving through some detail, I want you to have that question in your mind. Is hell a just punishment for the unrighteous? Because that's the backdrop from which we're, we're addressing everything that we're addressing tonight. The, uh, the bottom line is that as we're looking at this, two things. Uh, number one, this is a knowledge of God issue. This issue is about really who is God. We have all these ideas about, uh, you know, is hell just or is God, you know, the, how can a God of love do such a thing? We have all these little questions swimming around in our minds. Ultimately, at the core of those questions, the, the real question is who is God? And so we have to deal with who is God, and then we can really take a look at like a question like tonight, like is hell a just, a just punishment for the unrighteous? The other point I want to make just as we're getting, getting into this is, uh, and I've been very careful about this subject, and I feel like we need to be because this is a very important and a very serious subject, something we can't be flippant about. But the other thing we have to remember as we're dealing with this topic is that we're not just trying to work through theological ideas to sort of just get the, the technical understanding. Like, that's not our goal. Uh, I, I do want to put uh, ammunition in your hands as you're able to, uh, as you come across these different arguments, you have some biblical ammunition to be able to to discern truth from error, I want to do that. But my main point isn't about a technical argument or, or some kind of, you know, theological, uh, you know, debate. My main point is that we remember that this is real. There are real people whose eternities are at stake when we're talking about the issue of hell. And we can't just approach this with this sort of high-minded technical approach, just theology, and, and we definitely can't allow this to be in the realm of cliche. And, um, and I'm just a guy, personally, that I don't, I don't preach if it's not from my heart. So I, 
What I do is I go after a subject, I digest it, I, I bring it into my own chest, and then I let it impact me, and then from that well, I try to, to release what I've got. And so that's, the, I think, the main point I'm trying to make is this thing has got to impact our hearts. It's got to impact the way we perceive. It can't simply be, oh yeah, hell, I know that. Un- unrighteous people go to hell. That, that is so not the point. The point is to understand this in a way that, that compels us and that, that moves our hearts with compassion. And so I want us to remember that we're, when we're talking about hell, we're talking about the eternal destination of real people. And, uh, and that should... That should work us in a certain way. So with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to lay out a few foundational truths uh, about who God is and some premises that we, that we can derive from those truths. These would be theological points. These are biblical truths, and I, would, I just want to just lay them out for us. And then from that basis, I want to deal with the question, is hell just? Because the bottom line is if we try to deal with the question before we take a look at God, we're going to kind of miss the point entirely. So let's take a look at some of the uh, foundational ideas that we've got to kind of get in mind as we're addressing the question. Okay, four foundational truths that each of them have a premise. I'm going to give you the truth and then I'm going to talk about it and then I'll give you the premise. The first one is this. The first foundational truth is this. God's knowledge is perfect. God's knowledge is perfect. And, and that, that has a twofold application. There's a twofold thing about God's knowledge. What I mean is this God knows everything, it, it, all the possible data that there is to know, God knows it and manages it without any kind of a stretch. He knows every minute detail of the heart of every individual. He knows all of that. And he knows all of the mysteries of, you know, thermonuclear physics, outer space, every kind of possible, you know, scientific thing. God knows all of it. He knows all the data. And it doesn't, that amount of information doesn't even, it doesn't bog him down at all. Like cards in a deck, like a dealer would handle the cards in a deck, easily rustling through 52 cards. God knows all the details and and is able to move it around and manage it with that type of skill. You and I, on the other hand, can barely manage like our to-do list. If it gets too long, we are stressing out, we're bogging down, uh, you know, we are melting under too much input, we get overstimulated. There's not enough information, data, input to overstimulate God. He's fully able to handle every bit of information and manipulate it without a problem. So when I say his, his, when I say his, his knowledge is perfect, I mean he's omniscient in that he's, he knows everything. But again, it's not, just, it's not like all the knowledge is at the borders of what he's able to manage. All the knowledge that's available is far within the borders of what God's able to handle. He's got more bandwidth than there is information. So... so That's God. But here's the other point. He knows everything and his perception or his understanding of everything is perfect. It's precise. It's not like he knows all the data, but some of it he doesn't know how to apply. Do you know what I'm saying? He knows all the information and his perspective on all the information is 100% accurate. He is the plumb line. He is the definer of truth as it relates to every bit of information that exists. 
My point is this, you could take our smartest, smartest, smartest minds, take the top 10,000 on the earth, take their combined knowledge together, it would still only be a fraction of everything that God knows. But here's the other little point. As you combine all 10,000 smartest minds across the planet, what they think they know, a big portion of it, they don't even think about it right. You see what I'm saying? Their perspective of, of what they think they know, their, their perspective of their understanding, it's only a fraction accurate. It's only a percentage accurate. And, and this, beloved, then gets us to see something that uh, maybe we don't quite comprehend, that our, our, our best brightest, smartest, and sharpest in no way even comes close to comprehending all the knowledge and then no way does our best, brightest, and sharpest, and smartest even know how to apply the knowledge. There's also, let me just give you an example. There's all sorts of stuff you know. But we could present information And the perspectives on that information would be as wide and varied as there are people in the room. You know what I'm saying? So our human perspective is radically flawed. God's is not. God's is perfect. God's knowledge is perfect. He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's well able to manage all the information, all the data that's available. And his perspective on all of it is perfect. So, when we start this conversation about, is hell just? The question, immediately, you recognize that the question is pretty presumptuous. Because no matter what, not one of us has all the information on any individual or any situation. Not one of us. Not even close to all the information. God has it all. And in addition, the information that we do have, we don't even quite understand it. God has all the information and he knows 100% what the information means. And his perspective on it is perfect. My point becomes this, that God's knowledge is perfect and so we've got to then operate from this premise that the most spiritually minded among us, the, the, the person that's got the most truth, the most understanding, only perceives reality at a glimpse of the way that God does. Our best only sees it just at like a whisper. It's just a moment, a, a, just a sliver, a, a little bit of a glimpse of the way it really is. He is God and we are not. He knows everything and we do not. And he understands everything. And we do not. So his knowledge is perfect and the premise is this, that our best, brightest, sharpest is only getting a glimpse. Second, laying out foundational truths. All of God's attributes are infinite. All of his attributes are infinite. Now, here's the thing. You can't confuse God's attributes with human emotions. God has emotions. He has feelings. But he doesn't swing and bounce from feeling to feeling like you and I. God is what God is all the time. That's who he is. He, he, he doesn't kind of you know, feel good one day and then the next day feel bad. You and I, we get out of bed and one day we're cranky and the next day we're not. You know, one day we're happy and the next day we're sad. We're just kind of these roller coaster emotional beings. We kind of move in and out and we're trying to govern our soul by the Spirit of God. Well, God isn't like that at all. God has attributes. His attributes are all the time what He is. He is love and He is mercy and He is kindness and He is goodness. God is truth and God is beauty. And, and God is also fury and wrath. And God is anger. I mean, he, there are verses and verses of who God is. 
in anger towards wickedness. And we've got to deal with the truth of who he is in all of him or we're not looking at him rightly. And what we tend to do is we tend to deal with God like a buffet. We go ahead and grab the pieces that we really like. We leave the stuff we don't like. And then we have this portion-sized view of God according to our tastes. He's the whole buffet. He's everything. He's all the attributes. And here's the thing. All of his attributes are infinite. His love and his goodness are infinite. And when I say infinite, what I mean is this. They last forever. They are from forever to forever. But I want to also add this other word. They are transcendent. Transcendent simply means they're of a completely different kind than ours. The uncreated God is in a zone all of his own. We are created. He is uncreated. Everything else has been made. He has not. The highest archangel, the lowest amoeba, we're in the same zone. God is in his own zone. And all of his attributes are transcendent. That's what that word means. Other than. Different. He is different than us. His love is different. His wrath is different. His joy is different. His goodness is different. His truth is different. It's transcendent. Every one. So every one of his attributes are infinite. They last from forever to forever. And Every one of his attributes is of a different nature than ours. We only get it through a glass darkly. That's the way 1 Corinthians 13 describes our vision, our view of God. We we get it through a glass darkly now. It's that that hazy, dark glass trying to look through and see the the reflection of God. We we, we get it just in a a hazy, dim view now. I tell you, there's a time coming we're going to see him face to face. And man, things will make a lot more sense. See him as he is. The Bible says the instantaneous response and reaction to our soul and our being is when we see him, we will be like him. Shaboom. The lights come on. So this God, this God of perfect knowledge is a God of infinite attributes. And so... We, we have to admit that we don't comprehend his attributes. We, we've got to go ahead and just admit it. We don't know like he knows. We don't comprehend like he comprehends. And we don't know him the way we think we do. And so when we say he's a God of infinite goodness, we have no idea what we're even saying really. We, what, what is infinite goodness? What is that? What is transcendent infinite goodness? What's transcendent infinite joy? What's transcendent infinite love? Infinite transcendent happiness. What are they? Can you tell me? What's transcendent infinite wrath? What's transcendent infinite anger with wickedness? What is that? What's transcendent jealousy? We got to agree then. This is the premise that we've got to get to when we say his attributes are infinite. Then our premise becomes this. He's infinitely above what we can imagine. We are seeking him out, beloved, for infinity. We will be coming to know him and never getting to the end of him. We will be delving in to the depths of the being of God forever, always gaining more and more knowledge and understanding of who he is, and never ever exhausting him. That's infinite. Infinite goodness. Infinite beauty. So, 
this God whose knowledge is perfect, this God whose attributes are infinite, that puts us in this place where we, we don't know him the way we imagine we do. The best among us is completely dim. Our comprehension of his attributes, he's infinitely above what we can imagine. And then that brings us to this point of the distinction of his attributes, which I've touched, but let's just say it clearly. In God, there is wrath and mercy. In God, there is hatred and love. In God, there is goodness and severity. These are all a part of his makeup. They all burn from the same fire. This is our God. He doesn't swing from one to the other. He is them. He is these attributes, and far more than these. And I just confess, I just, those verses where you see that God hates wickedness, I just read them and just, oh, I can't deal with it. I don't even want to look at it. But there are reasonable ways to consider the truth of the God who has hatred for wickedness in his being. The God who's angry at sin. That's real. We've got to see him as he is. Or then when we get to the subject of something like eternal hell, we, we, just, we just wilt under it because we've rejected several of his attributes. Beloved, it all burns from the same fire. Love, jealousy, judgment, wrath. It's all an expression of him. All of these attributes are God. The question is, is there, a, is there a conflict in God? Is there some kind of deal in God where he's, you know, in this divine confliction? Because all of the attributes are infinite. They last forever. All of them are, are transcendent. They're of another kind. And all of them are in manifestation all the time. And what we think of when we think of that is just, I mean, we couldn't possibly begin to manage such a thing. This is our God, though. And he manages it in perfection. Perfect stability. Perfect stability. The fire of his love and the fire of his wrath burn simultaneously without a contradiction in him. No conflict in our God. And that is our premise then, that there is no contradiction in God. He's the only one who can host seemingly conflicting attributes simultaneously. And this requires us to stare at these truths a bit. And I just want to share two verses to to nail this point. Because we stare at those truths and we go, ooh, who, who, who are you? We love the God who is mercy, but do we love the God who is justice? We love justice when it's on our behalf. But do we love justice when justice is served in eternal torment? This is what we've got to grapple with. Let me give you a couple of verses. Look at Ezekiel 33. I love Ezekiel 33. In a minute, I'm going to read Deuteronomy 28. Verse 63. I want to love that one just like I love Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. The Lord speaking to Israel who's under divine judgment because they've strayed away from God and worshiped false idols. Here's what God says. Tell them, tell them, Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked... Turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die? For why should you die, O house of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord. Man, that helps my heart. He's he's not the God that's up there laughing and delighting in the eternal torment of wicked people. He takes no pleasure in their death, he says. But at the same time, at the exact same time, take a look at Deuteronomy 28. And I want to be honest with you. 
I wrestled with even showing you Deuteronomy 28. I mean, you could find it on your own, but I wrestled with even preaching this. But God is who he is, and we've got to agree with him and wrestle with the truth of his nature. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says, if you will hearken diligently to the voice of the Lord your God, and he goes on, he says, I will give you all these blessings. If you'll obey him and hearken diligently to his voice, I'll give you all these blessings. And then he goes, but if you do not hearken, if you don't listen to the voice of the Lord your God and you do not obey him, he goes, I will release all these judgments. And then look at what he says in verse 63 to Israel. Now he's the same one who just said to Israel and Ezekiel, I do not rejoice. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Look what he says. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you so, the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. You shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. You stare at that and you go, well, who are you then? Are you the God that doesn't delight, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Are you the God that rejoices in judgment? Who are you? He says, yes. Yes. I am that I am. And then I say, so who are you in that you rejoice in judgment? He goes, I love my justice. I love mercy And I love justice. He's the God that that loves and celebrates the righteousness of his justice just as he celebrates the righteousness of his mercy. And so when he's saying this over the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy 28, he's rejoicing in who he is. He's rejoicing in the righteousness of himself. And where we go is we make it so self-centered. We go, how could God be happy about releasing judgment and justice? I mean, what about us? And he says, what about me? What about me being true to my nature? What about the perfection of my knowledge? What about the perfection of my understanding? Do you believe, do you think you comprehend more perfectly than I do? Do you hold an accusation over me? The God that understands, the God that knows perfectly, rejoices in his perfect justice. He rejoices in his nature. He rejoices in his mercy and he rejoices in his judgment. I was uh, praying with my son. And we were praying for the middle school. And I said, I want you just to start calling out the names of the kids that need to get saved. Just call out their names. And we'll just, we'll just pray and ask God to break in with understanding and light. And as he's calling out the names, one of the kids' faces comes before me. And I just, my heart gets struck with the desire for mercy for this kid. Because in a minute, it was just like one of those moments of knowing the Lord will just drop on you. In a moment of knowing, the Lord just reveals to me and shows me this kid's family. And I know that he's been raised away from God. I know that his parents are not instructing him in the ways of God, that they have no value for spiritual things. And it's created this little, this little boy who's 13 years old and he's perverse in his, in his mind and he's, he's you know, just flagrant in, his, in, in, his, in his, what he says, just in the perversion of his, of his words. And I just, all of a sudden, just this moment of understanding hits me and I see his history. I see that there's no understanding of God being given to him. And I get this, just this intense sensation of his eternal doom. I recognize without God intervening with liberating light and revelation, this young, this 13-year-old boy, he is doomed. Man, mercy. The 
cord of mercy in my heart begins to vibrate, and I'm just weeping. I'm, I'm undone, heaving and weeping, crying for this young man. God, have mercy on him. I don't even know him. I've never even met him. I just know who he is because he's, you know, in, the, in the, my son's team. Mercy, God, mercy, God, mercy, God. And another nugget of understanding hits my mind that I am not in my own emotions because I don't know him. And there is such love filling my soul for this young man and I'm crying for mercy, crying for his soul, asking God to break in with light and understanding. And I realize in just that instant, I'm touching God's heart for him. I'm, I'm feeling God's emotions for him. And, and all of a sudden, the Lord makes it clear to me. It's just, you know, it happens instantaneously, you know, in your heart. You go boom, 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 whoa. But it hits me instantaneously. I'm feeling God's love for this guy. And the Lord just simply poses the question, how long have I loved him? And I said, well, from, from everlasting to everlasting is your love. And man. I start understanding something. God loves this young man and wants a relationship with him. And if this young man doesn't come to know the Lord, God will still love him and want relationship with him because God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. He says to wayward Israel, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And what I comprehend in that moment is this, that those that God has created for relationship, humans, people, God loves people. God so loved the world. God loves people. And when people reject God, God doesn't quit loving them. They just also engage God's wrath as well. So the God who is justice releases wrath on the wicked while still desiring relationship with them Beloved, there are people that have gone to Hades. They've gone to hell. And God's love is still engaged. He can manage all the attributes at the same time without confliction in his own heart. This is our God. He rejoices in his justice. He rejoices in his judgment. And... He's longing in love and desire for humanity. Without contradiction, every attribute of God operates simultaneously. Okay, our fourth truth with premise, and this is just a little different, but it's important. And it's just simply this, hell was never made for humans. Hell was never created for humans. It was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41 makes that clear that the Lord, when he judges somebody and he sends them to hell, he will say to them, depart from me into the everlasting torment prepared for the devil and his angels. The everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Here's how it works. Really, this life, this, it's a vapor. It's just a moment. It's just so, it, we really, there's so many details of life and it can get so confusing, but we really can boil it down to something very simple as this. You get a choice in life on which leader you'll choose. You just, you just, you get to choose the, the leader you want. Do you want Jesus to be your leader? Or do you want Lucifer to be your leader. That, that's really what it boils down to. Those that choose Jesus as their leader, as their Lord, they spend eternity with Jesus in the place that Jesus prepared for them. But those that choose Lucifer, that choose Satan as their leader and reject Jesus, they will go in the place prepared for Lucifer. Eternal torment in hell, that's real, beloved. Hell was never made for humanity. Hell was made for Satan. And humans, because they reject the lordship, the leadership of Jesus Christ, they will receive the same 
eternal justice upon their life as God designed for Lucifer himself. That one's hard to bear. The fact that people miss out on what's been made for them. Noah's ark is a picture. There's room in the ark for everyone on on the earth at the time. And they reject the ark and receive the, the punishment of sin. They join themselves to sin and receive the punishment of sin in their lives and in their bodies. This is how it is for eternity. And people that reject Jesus and, and choose Satan, they receive the punishment made for Satan. And so here's where it goes. There's these human mentalities that, you know, the devil runs hell. In rock bands, they write songs about we're going to party in hell and Satan this and that and he's going to you know, rule and, and do all this in hell. Listen, make no mistake, Satan will not be leading anything in hell. He will be the object of the torments of hell along with everyone that follows him. Satan is not in charge in hell. God is in charge of hell. God made hell. God is in charge of hell. God is the one, Jesus said, that you're supposed to revere because he is able to cast someone into hell. The devil can't do that. We have completely conflicted this idea and have this cartoon theology about sort of Satan ruling in hell and, and God rules in heaven. No, that's false. Hell is under the leadership of Jehovah. And the fire that burns in hell is from the same fire of his nature that burns in heaven. And then this brings us to the premise. The truth is that God never created it for humans. The premise is this. That hell is a place that manifests God's leadership. Hell shows us his leadership, God's leadership, and hell actually tells us of his nature. God made hell, not for people, for the devil. God is the one that leads hell. So we're going through these truths, we're pulling out these premises, these are theological ideas, biblical thoughts. Our backdrop question is still this, is hell just? And as I just started thinking about that question, I just, you know, I just had to ask myself, how am I okay with this? And I don't know what you've been doing the last few weeks that we've been talking about hell, but so often I'm doing this. I'm in a public place. I'm looking around. I'm thinking about how many people are there, and I'm asking the Lord the question, how many of these people are going to heaven? And how many of these people are not? And I just immediately get this groan, and I'm looking for ways, how can I share the gospel? And I'll be in the restaurant, or I'll be at the ball game, and I'll look around, how many of these people? And so I go, is this just? Now I know the question is, the question is so exemplary of human hubris. I mean, so exemplary of our own arrogance. How could we stand above the God who knows everything, whose understanding is perfect, and ask him a question like that? The question, I mean, it just exposes us that we're so arrogant. We don't know and we don't understand. And so to stand there and go, is it just? I mean, come on. So I softened the question for myself and I said, so I know the answer is just, okay, I know that, but am am, am I okay with this? And I just had to come to grips with this, that I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And I don't think that's the right response when we're talking about people going to hell. I don't think being okay with people going to hell is the right response. I think that we've got to take a look at this thing on a much deeper level and come up with a better answer than I'm okay with this. We're talking about people in eternity in hell. I'm not okay with it. It's never okay. But it is always just. It is always the depiction of God's righteousness and his justice. 
And here's how I want to show you the answer. We're looking at God. We're seeing his greatness. We've got these truths and these premises, these foundational ideas. From there, we can, we can begin to draw conclusions. I've got four conclusions that, that answer this question, is hell just? The first conclusion is this. Since God is perfect, he's perfect in every way. He's not simply perfect in his knowledge. He's perfect in everything. He's perfect in all of his attributes. Since God is perfect in every way, since he's infinite and perfect in all of his attributes, in his understanding, in his holiness, in every feature of who he is, since he is perfect, any offense to the God who is perfect is an infinitely horrific offense. He's infinite in his perfection. So every offense against him is infinite. It's an infinite offense. All sin is an infinite offense. The most putrid murder is an infinite offense and the the smallest white lie because we're dealing with the God who's perfect. See, half of our problem is we have no concept of the vileness of sin. We imagine sin to sort of be like a stub toe or stepping on somebody's shoe. We think sin is this minor little issue. You have no concept. We have no concept of how, how vile, how putrid, how disgusting sin is. It required God's death to pay for it. God sacrifices his darling son because it's the only possible payment for sin. Every offense is an infinite offense. Second, anything that is against God's love and against God's goodness Any offense against God's love and against his goodness, any sin is therefore infinitely worse than we can imagine. Because remember our limited understanding and God's perfect understanding. He knows all the information. He perceives it 100% correctly. Our perception is limited and our understanding is only in part. No matter how intense I can depict the vileness, the, the heinousness of sin, I, I can't, I'm not even touching it. The truth of what it is. The horrifying nature of sin. And so because sin is infinitely worse, no matter how bad we consider it to be, it's infinitely worse in God's eyes. Thirdly, because it's an infinite offense, because it's infinitely worse than we can actually imagine, the eternality of hell, the fact that hell is eternal, it is a statement of the excessive grievousness of sin. My point is this, with an infinite offense, it requires an infinite justice an infinite penalty, an infinite punishment. Eternal torment, it's necessitated by God's goodness. Here's why. He's infinitely good, and therefore every offense against his goodness has to be recompensed. So the fact that hell is forever is a statement of the severity of and the heinousness of sin. We're asking the question, is this just? The fact that hell is forever, it tells us how horrifying, how horrendous the offense of sin is. Which brings us to number four. 
simply this. The horror of sin in light of the perfection of God makes an eternity in hell the only just punishment. The punishment has to meet the trespass. Anything less would be unjust. Do you understand? Anything less than an eternal punishment would be unjust because the sin is an infinite and eternal offense. We imagine hell to be too much because we haven't conceived of the over-the-top heinous nature of sin. The eternal nature of hell is the only justice available to pay for the eternal nature of sin. The fact that he's good means he must judge sin. If he wasn't good, he wouldn't judge it. And he judges it in a measure that's commensurate with the offense. The fact that he's good necessitates eternal torment in the lake of fire. That answers our question. Here's what I want to give you. I want to give you one final thought. I, uh, I said earlier in the series that when I picture the torment of hell, what I picture is all five of our sensory compartments receiving the highest level of negative input possible. Sight, smell, taste, feel, touch. All of it, just, just getting overloaded with the highest measure available of negative negative feeling, negative sound, negative visual, all of it. But I want to say this. I don't feel like that is the most severe torment of hell. I believe the most severe torment of hell is of another nature. It's just this. Every person that goes to hell will stand before Jesus. Jesus Christ is the perfection of beauty. He dwells in unapproachable light. His throne is the perfection of pleasure. At his right hand, there's pleasures evermore. There's fullness of joy around him. They will all, every one of the unrighteous, will stand before Jesus to hear the sentence of eternal torment. And the last image on their mind will be of the one that they've rejected, of the beautiful one, of the kind one, of the loving one, of the merciful one, the one that paid to get them out of hell. They will have seen what was available And that will be the last image on their mind before they spend an eternity in the lake of fire. The most horrifying torment of hell, I don't believe, are the things that will assault the senses. The most horrifying torment of hell will be the fact that they'll see what they could have had. And with that knowledge, we'll enter an eternity away from his presence. Beloved, this is real. This is real. This is not simply for theological points. This has got to work our hearts. And I know if you walk around thinking about this all the time, yeah, I know, it weighs on your emotions. Trust me, I understand this. 
My goal isn't that we would walk around thinking about it all the time, but that there would be such an alive strand in our heart that when we come in contact with the lost, all of our self-righteousness is drained because we comprehend the truth that if they don't know Jesus, they don't, if they haven't tasted his mercies, they will taste his wrath. And from there, that we have compassion. So often I feel like our evangelistic efforts have been like a person drowning in an ocean and there we are on a, on a vessel that can save them, holding the, the, the flotation device over them and going, look at you, you're drowning. Look at you. Do you want this or not? You don't want it. Without compassion, without a sense of reality of the the destruction of the individual, it's almost like we hold the life raft over them, we hold the flotation saving device over them, and and almost like we're, we're adding to the assault of the sin that's dragging them down. And all that we would conceive them through the heart of God's love for them, that heart that has an eternal love, an eternal love that doesn't go away. So you and I, here's how we imagine. When we're feeling love, we feel love until we're angered. And then we're not feeling love anymore, we're feeling angry. We're feeling joy until we don't feel joy and we're feeling unhappiness now. It's not God. God feels love. God feels anger. God feels wrath. And God feels joy. His joy and his, his love do not cease simply because his wrath and his anger are employed. We have to touch that strand in the heart of God of desire and love and compassion for the, the lost that would even make somebody like Stephen the martyr, while he's being bludgeoned by stones, say, forgive them. Have mercy, God. Where did he get that? From the very heart of God. That's what these truths have got to do. They've got to move out of these cliche ideas of, oh, they're just going to hell. That is so beneath why so beneath the truth of what this is supposed to do to our hearts. It's got to work us and bring us to a place of compassion. That we, can, that we can exhibit the love of God for the lost. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.